Hi, folks. We are so glad that you're listening to Our Body Politic. If you have time, please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps other listeners find us, and we read them for your feedback. We are here for you, with you, and because of you. Thank you. This is Our Body Politic. I'm Farai Chidea. Life is profoundly shaped by what we do with our pain, with grief, with tragedy. Do we let it take us under or do we find a path through what once seemed unthinkable? That's something that Nelba Marquez-Green knows intimately. First, she chose to become a licensed marriage and family therapist. And then 10 years ago, her six-year-old daughter, Anna, was shot and killed at the Sandy Hook Elementary School in Newtown, Connecticut. In total, the gunman killed 20 first graders and six educators. Just days ago, nine families of Sandy Hook victims were awarded $73 million in a judgment against Remington Arms. Lawyers successfully argued that the gunmaker violated a state law by marketing to people who were risk to public safety or too young to buy guns. Nelba and her family did not participate in the suit, nor did the majority of families of victims. She and her family founded the Anna Grace Project, an organization focused on building community and connection in order to prevent violence and promote healing. And at the end of next month, there will also be an elementary school in Anna's name. I sat down with Nelba, founder and executive director of the Anna Grace Project, to ask what each of us can do about gun violence and how she continues to keep Anna's legacy alive. You know, is this is one of those things where I don't know where to start with you in some ways because you already were so deeply involved in trying to make the world better for families and children before the tragedy of your daughter's killing. And now it just seems to me like your voice is so strong. And you were on an MSNBC interview talking about making the case to people for staying engaged. So tell me about the Anna Grace Project. Sure. So we wanted in the aftermath of this, um, you said killing uh, after, which I am grateful you use that language because that's exactly what it is. And we try to soften it often to kind of pull away from the tragedy, and we shouldn't. And in the aftermath of Anna's killing, we wanted to make sure that other children who are loved just as much as as her, as her brother Isaiah, uh, would have resources also as they experienced tragedy or came from situations where um, they needed to heal. So we provided mental health support, conferences, funding for many different schools. We were embedded and are embedded in many different schools, uh, providing direct mental health services and have done many, many things in her memory, trying to build legacy. Yeah. And now that there has been a settlement, which you are not a party to, and I do want to ask you about that a little bit. But first, is this progress, how does it sit in your heart to see how many shootings there have been in the decades since Anna Grace was killed? And at the same time that there has been some desire to reckon with this in a civil court? Progress often isn't linear and it isn't clean and neat and tied with a bow. So I am incredibly grateful for this verdict, for the nine families involved in the suit. Hopefully it will spare some other family 
from the same pain or uh, allow them to find justice in a way that feels meaningful for them should they go forward with a suit like this. So that's what this did, is kick the door down. So I'm grateful for those nine. I'm also aware at the same time, I think I read an article that said we had more mass shootings this year than any other year or more uh, shootings at school or more deaths of people. So it is both. And is your family pursuing a civil legal action on your own since you weren't part of the class action? You know, at the time we were offered the opportunity to step in to the many lawsuits that were going on, we made the choice to go in a different direction. I don't think people understand how much care and support survivors need after tragedy. And I certainly Mm. hope that people don't see these nine families and go, oh, okay, well, they're all set now. You know, we're never Mm going to be all set, whether you got $5 million in a settlement or not. This is not something that gets all set. So no, we did not pursue, we won't be pursuing. Um, No, we will not. And speaking of care, you have a son, you have a husband, Jimmy, and your whole family has been part of this journey. How do you support each other as a family? I'm so grateful that you're asking me that because that changes over time. It changes as we kind of march along, and it is now almost 10 years later, and it changes in every season of development. It's changing now as Isaiah is ready to be a full adult. We try to manage every day with the strength and resources that that we have available with our faith and also with the search for beauty. My husband is an educator. He loves teaching. He has a passion for students, and that has not changed. He's also a performer. He's a creative. He plays all over the world, and that is his outlet for remembering his baby girl. And um, it is in line with what we do, right? We are in... Mm -hmm. um, cutting the ribbon on a brand new 800 students strong facility with 165 educators uh, on March 30th, the Anna Grace Academy of the Arts. And Oh, that is amazing. Yes. And we are just so deeply proud that the arts can be a part of our healing and supporting the arts being parts of other people healing. Yeah. This is a little bit of a digression, but I was really excited to learn that the poet La Bruja had become the new head of the New Yorican Poets Cafe. And of course, she's Puerto Rican, you're Puerto Rican. I just wonder how being Puerto Rican has influenced how you've dealt with this. I am in tears right now that you asked me that question because it has been almost 10 years and no one has ever asked. Um, So thank you. Um, It is incredibly meaningful to be asked that because we're not like every other family and no other family is alike. But specifically to being Puerto Rican, I have to say that's why so much of this was so deeply offensive. Not just losing her, but all we had to go through after the accusations of profiting off a child, the accusations by so many people of this not even being real, of being a part of a conspiracy to you know, take guns from people. If you know anything about Puerto Rican culture, we are a family-oriented, strictly community-based culture and society. And the idea that we would be a part of something, of profit 
off our daughter or, you know, a part of a conspiracy was just so deeply offensive to me. It made me cry on many days and still does. Um, having to explain this to my mom, right, who had taught for 32 years, um, who lives on the island now full time, to my family who live there, it, w- it often left me without words. Yeah, yeah. And can I ask, how do you talk to your son, a young brown man in America, having lost his sister, having watched his parents have to kind of triage civil society to try to get things changed. What do you tell him? Isaiah has always been the soft, gentle spirit, and he's just so wise. He's so wise. He knew some things. We prayed that night when we came home that we were aware we had lost one child, that we would not lose this other one or stray Mm. from the path of knowing how to raise them. Because they write a lot of books about child rearing, but they don't write a lot of books about growing up a surviving child when a six-year-old is lost, is murdered by a mass shooter. So we just tried every day to live honestly. And one decision we made that I'm very proud of is we always said, if you are looking for truth, you will find it at home. We are never going to keep something Mm. from you. We are never going to not explain something for you. We want you to learn it at home. So all these things people are saying, you have a question, come home, we'll be here. And I think that really helped develop some trust. Oh, that's amazing. I mean, you know, that rite of passage for black and brown boys in America is already so fraught. I can only imagine with everything you've had to deal with still, you are a licensed family therapist. You are a healer. Why did you take that path before any of this even happened? That's a great question too. So I was a teacher and I was finding in my classrooms that the the students who did better were students who had family involvement. And that made me super curious about family therapy. I also have a pretty extensive personal history of trauma. I have an adverse childhood experience score of nine. Uh, my first, mm. uh, you know, kind of go round with gun violence wasn't December 14th. I was five years old. So mm. um, I think it's my own narrative. You know, let this be a message to anyone listening that, you know, it's not your job to heal other people when you have an extensive trauma history, but your story shared can create different pathways um, for people as they consider their own journeys. I just want to say that it is tremendous to hear about the Academy opening in your daughter's name and all of the work that you have done with Anna Grace, but also the work that you have done with yourself. You clearly are someone who is a fully realized person in your words, deeds, and actions. And I'm just so grateful, Nelba, that you made time for us. Thank you for that. And I want other survivors to know that this is possible for them and that they deserve this. There are many roads for survivors, but I hope all of those roads include self-care, self-love, and self-compassion. Truer words. Thank you again. Thank you. That's Nelba Marquez-Green, mother of Anna Grace Marquez-Green. She's a licensed marriage and family therapist and executive director of the Anna Grace Project. 
Coming up next, record high inflation is jacking up the prices of groceries and home goods across the United States. Washington Post columnist Michelle Singletary answers your questions on how to get by. Plus, on Sippin' the Political Tea, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. That's on Our Body Politic. Welcome back to Our Body Politic. I'm Farai Chidea. The latest Consumer Price Index report showed that prices in January rose by 7.5 percent. That's a 40-year high, and people are feeling squeezed. So we asked you to give us some perspective. We made a call out on last week's show and on social media to find out where inflation is hitting your wallet and your life. And here's what some of you had to say. When the money starts to dwindle, you still have to pay for it. Ubers to daycare. You got to pay for daycare. You got to pay for food. The price point would be the gas because I do a lot of driving, uh, mostly volunteering, helping people. The things that are hitting me the hardest are medical bills, tests that I need to have done as a person who lives with chronic illness. And thanks again for calling in. So while prices rise, so does our need for smart financial practices. Washington Post columnist and personal finance expert Michelle Singletary joined us to answer some of your questions. So, boy, is it a time of a lot of stress for a lot of people. Um, Spike in prices. I was talking about it with a, you know, rideshare car driver the other day who was, he's a Haitian immigrant, and he was talking about how hard it is to buy fresh fruits and vegetables. So what is behind this latest surge? I, I know that different people have different thoughts about it. Right. So inflation, you know, essentially is the cost of goods. So different pressures on uh, supply chains and labor shortages and consumer man pushes up the cost of goods. So what you might have paid for, you know, milk last month is much more this month. And so it erodes your ability to buy the things that you could buy last month. And so where you might have done steak and chicken, now you can only do chicken because that's all you can afford. Now, obviously, the pandemic hit the economy hard. Millions of people lost their jobs. uh, And as a result, things slowed down. Things stopped. Uh, And initially, the thought was this would be temporary. As people got back to work, you know, the supply chains would be be, uh, better. But this is not happening. Um, People are still out sick. Um, You know, wages are up. But if wages are up and prices are up, it kind of, you know, washes everything out, right? Like if you if your wages are up, but you've also got to pay more for housing and food, you don't really gain anything. You can't save the extra money you're making because your wages are taken up. Yeah. And as people have said in various contexts, the rent is too high. We've been hearing a lot about rising rents and we got a lot of questions about housing. Let's listen to one of the messages that we got. Taxes are raising, and that has been hard, especially the route that I took to be able to purchase a place so that I didn't have landlords who held control, took the route of, like, home ownership, and everything <laughs> continuously increases in costs and in bills and able to stay in this new home while others are being pushed out of their homes every day. Thank you for leaving us that message. And um, Michelle, people who rent 
are worried about the rent being too high. This is a homeowner who's talking about the taxes being too high. What's your basic advice on how to play your cards and where you live? Oh, this is such a hard question because, you know, houses are so essential to people and we have to rethink our housing situation and where it's possible. Um, Shared housing for now is the answer. Now, we know lots of people sort of held up with relatives and parents during the pandemic. And so now one of the reasons why rents are increased is that people say, well, I'm tired of living with other people. I want to now move out into my own place. You might not be able to do that right now. You may need to continue to stay with your parents or relatives or have those two or three roommates until prices stabilize so that you can afford uh, to move. So you are essentially preaching the gospel of do not overspend on your Barbie dream house when you don't have it to spend. And I was thinking of my younger years, and I really saved a lot of money at different times by couch surfing, by staying with people who were willing to put me up for free. And I had to make good judgments about whether I was imposing, what did it mean to be a good guest? But I remember specifically at one point when I was in my early 20s and working at Newsweek yon years ago, that someone who I didn't know well, you know, knew that I was struggling to find housing and just offered to put me up in her family's house because she was from New York in a, in a spare bedroom. And we are lifelong friends, you know, um, just because she's an amazing person. But I honestly thought twice about accepting her offer, even though I really desperately needed it. I was like, I don't know you. What's the deal? But um, and and you do it's it can be a level of hard decisions, even if you're lucky enough to have people who can help. How do you how do you deal with like the sort of freemium economy of housing? Right, right. So first thing is don't think of yourself as a freeloader or uh, an imposition. Um, and I look at it too, the person who needs that place to stay, you know, it's perfectly okay to say, I need help. Can I stay with you? I may be able to pay some rent. I may not be. And on the other side of that, if you have room in your home, if you have room in your two or three bedroom apartment, you've been using one room as an office and another is your TV room, take someone in, give them a breath of financial air. My husband and I have had two homes and we have always had someone living with us that didn't include just our kids. My sister, when she went through a bad divorce, a relative who got into some debt trouble, And we came and she lived with me for 18 months without paying any rent so that Mm. she could get herself back, you know, together. And so if you've got that space, if you've got that heart, let them in. As long as the person is moving forward. You know, I did a story about, you know, having our daughter come live with us. And there was all these snarky comments on, oh, you're a controlling parent. Oh, she needs to be living on her own and all this independence. (laughs) I I, I just, I was so, you could hear my voice because I was so mad. It's like she's a grown adult. She made the decision with us, but it was a very smart decision. And that's the problem we have. We want to say, if you're 18 or over, you kick out there. You know, you can be independent and live with someone. You can be a productive adult and have a roommate and be a roommate. And And can I just say, I mean, this speaking the obvious that uh, your race Uh, often determines your family's wealth. And so a lot of times I talked to one of my former students because I taught journalism and she was like, yeah, my, my, my colleague or my peers at work, you know, once she started working, their parents pay their rent. She's like, my parents don't pay my rent. 
Exactly. But you do what you have to do and you set the standards and, and don't think of yourself as a freeloader. And then also on the other side of that, welcome people to give them some financial breathing room. And eventually they will be out on their own and can move forward. And I yeah. think in this day and age with rising inflation, rising rents, rising food costs, we all have to play a part in helping each other weather this financial storm. Keeping with the real estate theme, we got uh, a couple more. Uh, we got many more questions, but a couple more. One from a listener, Amethyst. Amethyst was like, you know, what are the the saving techniques to use when preparing to think about owning land and property? And she says she would love to have a little farm someday. How do you, tactically do you save? And then what's your strategy, you know, in a rising market um, for cost of housing? The most effective strategy to save is to make it automatic. So whatever you can save, if it's $25 or couple of hundred dollars a month, make it automatic. So many employers, almost all that I know of at least, um, will allow you to split your paycheck into different accounts. And I've done this for years, for decades, really. So I have a main household account. That's where the bulk of my check goes, my paycheck to pay for, you know, food, housing. And then I send money off to a savings account that is automatic every month, goes in there uh, to emergency fund, uh, and that just sits there for when things crazy happens, car breaks down, you know, say I lose my job. And then I send that money off to other pots, like to save for a car or when we were, my husband and I buying our first home to, for that down payment for the home and closing costs. So send that money off to an account that you don't have an ATM and you don't look at. And that effectively helps you automate it. It's sort of set it and forget it. It's like that roasted chicken you put in a, you know, <laughs> a pot and you just set it and you let it go and do its thing. That's the most effective. Now, it's challenging if you're living on the edge and you don't have a lot of money. But the key thing is to just save whatever you can, when you can, as much, and push yourself and I know that's hard, particularly if people are struggling. But if you've got room, that means, you know, cutting out, eating out. It may mean not taking vacation for, for a, a couple of years. And it doesn't mean that you can't take time off. It just means maybe you can't go to an island, you know. Find some places in your city where you live that you can enjoy the time off you have from work. Now, as far as housing prices, lots of people are like, I'm never going to buy a house. And that actually is driving up housing prices because people feel, I've got to jump on it right now, as if there's never going to be another house available. If you're not ready for home ownership because it's too costly, you don't have enough, just be patient. This is Our Body Politic. I'm Farai Chidea. We're asking Michelle Singletary, personal finance columnist with The Washington Post, to answer your questions on surging prices and how to stay financially fit. So we've talked uh, quite a lot about housing. And now let's talk about food. We got a message from Mike in Greensboro, North Carolina. My wife and I have a recently turned one-year-old child, and in the last year, inflation has risen, and we've uh, felt the squeeze of that mostly at the grocery store for uh, buying food for us and formula for the baby. Uh, and a little at the pump. It's pretty much the same as everyone else, but 
my concern isn't so much the fact that we're paying more, but it's why we're paying more. It seems to me that um, not all products, whether they're at the grocery store or a restaurant or at the pump, they aren't all subject to bottlenecks in the supply chain. And these companies are charging us more simply because they can. And without much pushback from a Congress, they've bought off long ago. So, I mean, to me, this crisis of inflation seems to be as much, if not more, of a product of corporate greed. So, Michelle, you know, there are, I'm sure, a lot of different reasons for rising prices. Um, You know, our listener, Mike, is concerned that he's a victim of price gouging, whether or not that's the case. And first of all, can we know? And secondly, whether or not that's the case, you have choices to make. And and how do you deal with the food bills? Right. So I think for the large part, in this case, it may not necessarily be price gouging, but look, this is what's happening. So it costs the companies more to have workers. So wages have gone up. So that's one reason why things cost more. I mean, if you've gone to the local grocery store, I've noticed it's in my area where there's like 10 checkouts, you know, uh, cashier stands, you might have half of those filled with people. So, you know, uh, workers have decided, you know what, I don't have to work these long hours standing up on my feet. I could do something else and get paid more. So it's harder for them to find workers. Wages have gone up. That contributes to the cost, the rising costs in your food. Then there's supply chain issues. Think workers at plants and all over the country are sick and they're not up to full capacity. So there's less out there to buy. And if you know anything about economics, this is what happens. If there's a high demand and lower supply, prices go up. So it's just how it works. And so that's going on. And then if they can't get goods in one area, how do they make up the profit that they would have experienced if they can't get certain things in there? So they tend to raise prices on other items that people want and need, and they do have. So it's a combination of all of that. I don't know if we can say it's all about corporate greed. It's just where we are right now in the economy. You know, there's lots of consumer demand for things. We were all pent up for, you know, two years really now, going on, you know, three years. So we want to fix our porches. We want to have, you know, flowers for our garden. You know, it costs lights to turn on a grocery store. It costs lights to have, I mean, it costs money to have people come clean and stock the shelves. So you see it's sort of a vicious cycle. Uh, So we all sort of have to put up with that until things stabilize. Yeah. Let's wrap up here with employment. So we had one listener reach out to us talking about wanting to start his own business, but, you know, being a little worried uh, because of you know, the the volatility of the economy. And then a second listener, Matt, said that with inflation on the rise, his pay is depreciating. And he asked, when is the right time to talk about, (laughs) talk to my employer about raising my salary to match inflation? And how do I have that conversation? So that's, you know, that's a tough one. Yeah, it's a tough one. So for entrepreneurs, I'd say this. I'd say, you know, we are a country of entrepreneurs There's lots of people who want to go out on their own, and that's a great thing. Make sure that launch is not going to push you back financially. So make sure you have a good business plan. Make sure you've got some savings to cover those months 
while you get your business going and maybe the revenue isn't coming in to give you the profit that you need to run your household. So maybe keep your day job, do your side hustle on the side until you're ready to go out there on your own. And again, you've got to factor in the fact that you need health care. So if you've got health care with your job, but you're going to start out to your business, you got to factor that in and make sure that you're pricing whatever you're going to be doing on your, your business to make it work. Um, just be very careful. I know there's a lot of people who are anxious and want to do things on their own, and that's a great thing. But run the numbers. Make sure that you can do this and launch that business and not put yourself back financially. So it could mean that you might have to hold off a couple of years before you launch that business until things stabilize in the economy and you've got a good cash cushion to carry you while you build up that business. Um, And what about reaching out to your boss and saying, hey, boss, I'd like to be paid more? Yeah. So the thing about pay increases and asking for a raise, you want to focus on your job. So the thing is, don't go and say, hey, you know, I got to pay more for tomatoes. Give me more money. I don't think that's going to go over well. I think what you say is, I've been doing exceptional work and I believe that I deserve a better uh, a, a raise. Um, and here's why. And then list all the things you've been doing for the year. Focus on the job and your skill levels and what you've done as opposed to what it's costing you to live. Um, I'm not sure that's going to be the most effective way to get a raise. Everybody knows inflation's up, but your job, your supervisor is going to look at your performance and whether your performance merits a raise. So what I'm saying is I'm not discouraging you from asking for that raise, but make a case for that raise based on your performance. And particularly if during the pandemic, you rose to the occasion and then some. I mean, I know personally me, I've been working like nonstop writing about stimulus payments. So I think I have a good case <laughs> to ask for a raise. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you've been doing that, you worked at home with childcare issues and all kinds of things like that. You say, look at my performance during the most trying time of this company. Look at the sales that I brought in. Look at the, you know, if I had to you know, turn in forms and and process cases or whatever it is that you do. If you did it well and exceptional, use that as a case for your raise. I think that's going to be a more effective argument to get that money that you deserve. Well, speaking of exceptional, you are exceptional at giving us great advice on how to navigate these financial waters and they can be choppy. So I really appreciate it, Michelle. Thanks for joining us again. Thank you for having me. That's Michelle Singletary, personal finance expert, author, and columnist with The Washington Post. Coming up next, our weekly roundtable Sipping the Political Tea focuses on the Russian attack on the Ukraine with retired Major General Linda Singh and Wall Street Journal Moscow Bureau Chief Anne M. Simmons. You're listening to Our Body Politic. Each week on the show, we bring you a roundtable called Sippin' the Political Tea. And this week, we focus on Ukraine. Let me say it again. Our forces are not and will not be engaged in the conflict with Russia in Ukraine. Our forces are not going to Europe to fight in Ukraine, but to defend our NATO allies and reassure those allies in the East. 
Joining me this week is Dr. Linda Singh, retired Major General and former head of the Maryland National Guard. She also served in Kosovo and Afghanistan. Welcome back, Dr. Singh. Thank you so much, Farah. And we're delighted to have Ann M. Simmons, Moscow Bureau Chief for The Wall Street Journal. Welcome, Ann. Thanks for having me, Farah. And you're in Moscow. You've been reporting on this crisis every step of the way. Uh, Before we got started, you said you've been awake for two days, and we are so grateful to have you. So what is the current state of the attack in Ukraine? Well, things are moving really swiftly right now. Um, The the tension is really high. Uh, On Thursday morning, very early Thursday Moscow time, early for Russians because they tend to be late risers, at around quarter to six, In the morning, President Putin went on television with an address to the nation and to the armed forces, basically alerting the nation that he had approved a special military operation in Ukraine's eastern Donbass region. And uh, it was immediately, you know, knowing that then, okay, if that has been authorized, this means that tanks could begin rolling into Ukraine, into eastern Ukraine. And it turns out that it wasn't just eastern Ukraine. Today, we have seen attacks by the Russian military on several different uh, parts of Ukraine. And uh, even uh, the the sound of bombing and shelling in the Ukrainian capital, um, Kyiv. Retired Major General Singh, how prepared is Ukraine to defend their infrastructure. We have been seeing accounts of citizens, young and old, doing weapons training, including a member of parliament who considered himself a pacifist and then decided he needed to pick up a gun. But it also appears Russia may have knocked out air defenses in a matter of hours. What is the infrastructure question? For I think the challenge is that a country like Ukraine, as well as a number of others in that region, their military budget, their infrastructure budget is very small. So when you think about the time that they spend in conjunction to what they would need for um, an invasion like this, and this is an invasion, this is not, this is not a, you know, we're coming in to, to work with you. This is not, we're coming in to train with you. This is an invasion. It's a land grab. And so when you think about that, there are some protections that Ukraine could have um, taken care of ahead of time in, for instance, cyber. They knew that their infrastructure was not ready and not sufficient. This is not the first time that they've had cyber attacks. And so they really should have done more to prepare themselves. And I think that we really have to figure out how are we going to um, engage and and really intervene. And I hate to say that, but, you know, this is going to be what I would consider to be potentially another world war. Um, because Russia is not going to stop or Putin's not going to stop, right? I'm not going to say Russia as a country. Putin is not going to stop until he reestablishes the old Soviet Union. That is my fear, and I think that that is going to cripple the overall society. That's going to cripple supply chain. That's going to cripple business. It's going to cripple humanity. So it is critical Right now is a critical time for NATO to completely step forward and to, you know, surround our partners or we're going to lose it. And then we are going to find ourselves in the middle of another World War III. That is 
tough stuff to hear and important stuff to hear and why we have you two incredible experts with us. I mean, I used to cover data security for The Intercept, including covering the massive Office of Personnel Management hack of millions of records by China, and both Russia and China have been affecting cyber warfare, you know, in the U.S. as well as other parts of the world. One thing I think about, you know, Anne, I listened to a podcast you did with The Wall Street Journal And it talked a bit about sanctions, but also about, you know, how the dollar is still, you know, the number one global currency and how sanctions really affect Russia's ability to transact in the U.S. dollar, which will also affect supply chains, et cetera. So so and we've got military action, diplomatic action and sanctions, which you spoke about in this podcast, how do those puzzle pieces fit together against the framework, which Dr. Singh was talking about, of a potential World War III? Oh, it's a really good question for our, I mean, especially from the economic perspective. Um, obviously, if there is World War Three, that's going to be a geopolitical disaster. Even the the incursion of Russia into uh, Ukraine, that's already uh, set the, the, the train in motion, if you wish. I think I'd like to focus on sanctions because that obviously is what the US and Europe feel is a way of um, deterring Mr. Putin. But it's interesting. I mean, just just to start with the initial measures that have been put into place earlier this week, there are more coming. The initial measures include things like blacklisting banks, halting the Nord Stream 2 natural gas pipeline, which is meant to take gas from Russia to Germany. Um, The the EU is also planning to sanction a host of uh, individuals, officials, including actually the Russian defence minister, the country's internet research agency, the foreign ministry spokeswoman, and several um, members of Russia's uh, naval uh, and um, army staff. So the the defense ministry and also imports from and exports to the the regions that the separatists or calling them separatists now, the the leaders of the Russian held regions that have recently been recognized, there's going to be a ban on imports and exports to that region. And these are just a taste of what's to come. Stronger and more far reaching sanctions are in the works, but it won't just impact Russia. Because obviously, you know, it's a global village when it comes to the economy and all of these countries are interconnected. There has been talk about Russia possibly retaliating and, you know, turning off the pipes in terms of gas to Europe, um, which would be disastrous. And wasn't there some hesitancy at first by Germany about reacting to Ukraine in regards to its ability to access uh, fuel from Russia. Yes, yes, indeed there was. And, you know, there was that hesitancy because obviously, um, you know, gas is like the lifeblood, right? Everyone depends on Russia, and not everyone, but a large percent of Europe depends on Russia for its gas. So there was indeed hesitancy. Um, Russia, though, is ready. That Russia has been preparing for a very, very long time in terms of uh, sanctions. First of all, I should mention that uh, Russia greeted the sanctions quite strongly because they feel that uh, they're being uh, illegitimately targeted, is what the spokeswoman said for the foreign ministry. And Russia has promised to retaliate against the West with a very strong response. 
They have not said what that response might be um, at this time. But rest assured, Russia very much uh, always goes forth with um, tit-for-tat measures. And Russia has um, accused the West of trying to hinder its development and said that this is why the West is serial sanctioning. Russia has also spent the last couple of years weaning itself off the US dollar, you know, so that trying to, to not have the dollar be like the dominant currency that it, that it depends on. It's, it's also trying to diversify its trade portfolio and become less dependent on the European Union for, for export revenues. And the big um, kind of country in the picture here, if you wish, the friend in the picture is China. So even if these sanctions go forward, Russia does have kind of a fallback plan and a friend in China. Uh, so all of the products that might be banned from the EU and from the United States, it's very likely that China could come to the rescue. You're listening to Sip in the Political Tea on Our Body Politic. I'm Farai Chidea. This week, we're discussing the Russian attack on the Ukraine with Wall Street Journal Moscow Bureau Chief Ann M. Simmons and Dr. Linda Singh, retired Major General of the National Guard. If you're tuning in, you can catch the whole conversation on our podcast. Just find Our Body Politic wherever you listen to podcasts. And Dr. Singh, um, Farrah Stockman of the New York Times argued in a recent piece that we are seeing the Russia-China alliance that President Nixon feared come together. So picking up on what Ann just said, does that ring true for you? Absolutely. And it's, it's rang true for some time. I mean, we've seen this coming. We have tried to diplomatically um, deal with this. And, and I question whether sanctions will really work. We've never really seen them seen them work to the level that they need to. And right now, I think that it's a it's it's one of those attempts that's not going to help us be able to maneuver out of this in a way that's not going to have a significant loss. And I think what we're going to see is that if China does step to the rescue, we've got a serious serious issue on our hands and that doesn't mean that it's not serious already. But, the, you know, with, with all of the shortages, with everything that we have seen going on as a result of the pandemic, this, they picked the perfect time to mm. really kind of take this forward because we're already, you know, having challenges just with our supply chain. So what is that going to do if we have to go into a, a full-scale military operation um, and nonetheless, a full-scale military operation, maybe on two fronts. And that is, that to me, it, it scares me uh, probably a little bit more than, than I'd like to, to lead on because that's not a good place for us to be, um, not as a, a country and really not as a, a NATO element. Yeah, and, and to follow up on that, we have just seen the withdrawal from Afghanistan, which was widely criticized in its execution, but often greeted with relief on some level that the U.S. was beginning to pull back from certain global commitments and at a time when many people say we need to focus on the home front. But what is going to happen to the U.S. military now with this new twist in the geopolitical axes? Do you think, I'm just going to be honest here, do you think that the contemporary military is prepared? Well, I think that we have been um, looking more and more towards what it's going to take to really be back into our European theater. I mean, this is not 
something that we, you know, just woke up and, and thought about. I mean, this has been something that we focus on probably for the last decade, more and more and more as, as times have gone on, because we've seen that we've needed to kind of reshift our focus training and thinking. And so I would say that, you know, we are still, we, i.e. Um, the U.S. and then as a NATO element are still the best course of action, right? So if we stand firmly as a NATO element, um, that means our partner standing beside us, then, you know, we can really kind of put the bear back in the box, but it's not going to be done uh, overnight. I think we're probably in for something that's going to take us just a, a little bit longer and it, and it could potentially get us back into another conflict. And, and that would be something that I'm not, you know, not wanting to happen, but I, I'm, I just feel like it's going to happen. We're hearing very different things from current and former U.S. administrations. The Biden-Harris administration has been speaking out uh, about Ukraine, but former President Trump praised Putin's actions in Ukraine. Let's take a listen to an interview he did for Mar-a-Lago this week. Putin declares a big portion of the Ukraine, of Ukraine. Putin declares it as independent. Oh, that's wonderful. So Putin is now saying it's independent, a large section of Ukraine. I said, how smart is that? And he's going to go in and be a peacekeeper. That's the strongest peace force. We could use that on our southern border. That's the strongest peace force I've ever seen. There were more army tanks than I've ever seen. They're going to keep peace all right. And from your perch in Moscow, working tirelessly to bring us the story, how do you see the road ahead for the United States? Well, if we look at, uh, you know, the role that the United States is playing in this crisis, um, obviously, from the very beginning, um, they have wanted to stick to the negotiation table, but they've met kind of a bully in Mr. Putin. He has not listened. Some analysts have said that Mr. Putin actually views Mr. Biden as being a weak opponent, and that is why he's taken advantage of this moment. It's very interesting, uh, the comments that uh, former President Trump has made, because um, they, um, Mr. Putin and Mr. Trump had quite a good relationship. And people are questioning now, why would, you know, the former president go against the current president in, in, with this type of rhetoric in terms of supporting someone is basically violating all of the international norms, violating human rights, and has no respect for a nation that is sovereign and independent. Dr. Singh, how do you parse out the, the pathways ahead for the United States? Well, <laughs> it, it's just, so first off, just the overall comments about the, the messaging. I mean, it's just so, they are so, such opposing views, right? And when I think about, you know, the prior uh, leadership, and kind of the rhetoric around saying they praise this, well, that's an individual and a group that has no respect for humanity, has no respect for the rules, has no respect for anything in terms of democracy. And then when I look at the, the current administration, they need to stand fast. They need to hold and they need to step forth with a sharp, pointy, and I hate to say knife, right? But 
to cut through all the noise to kind of deal with this in a manner that really stands for what the U.S. people as a whole stand for, not the partial group and not, you know, the ones that kind of supported the last administration where, you know, we're we're, going to try to incite a world war here on the U.S. continent, right? We need to get back to what's fundamentally right with the U.S. and how we are going to stand with our partners. And that means solidarity. That means providing leadership and stop giving in to this cowardice crap of, oh, I praise you for this. No, you don't praise someone for doing something that is so fundamentally wrong against humanity. And so as far as is my perspective, we need to stand strong as a, com- as, as a country. Our leadership needs to know that we, um, the U.S. people, are behind them. We wouldn't want this to be done here in our country. And so why would we allow it to happen somewhere else around the world? We're going to leave it there. This is heavy stuff, and I hope that we can come back to both of you for more guidance. Dr. Singh, thank you for joining us again. Thank you. And Anne, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. That was Dr. Linda Singh, former head of the Maryland National Guard, and Anne M. Simmons, Moscow bureau chief for The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for listening to Our Body Politic. We're on the air each week and everywhere you listen to podcasts. Our Body Politic is produced by Diaspora Farms. I'm the executive producer and host, Farai Chidea. Our co-executive producer is Jonathan Blakely. Bianca Martin is our senior producer. Bridget McAllister is our booker and producer. Emily J. Daly is our producer. Our associate producer is Natina Bean. Production and editing services are by Clean Cuts at Three C's. Today's episode was produced by Lauren Schild and engineered by Rock Lee and Archie Moore. This program is produced with support from Craig Newmark Philanthropies, the Charles and Lynn Schusterman Family Philanthropies, Democracy Fund, the Harnish Foundation, Compton Foundation, the Heising Simons Foundation, the Be Me Community, Katie McGrath and J.J. Abrams Family Foundation, and from generous contributions from listeners like you. 